So if you're joining with us for the first time this morning, we began a new series last week called God and Sexuality. And actually next week, we're going to be opening that series back up again in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. And so you'll want to come back for that. Uh, It's going to be a really important talk next week. And so I really encourage you to come here. We're going to lay some important, I think, framework and foundational work for us as we continue on in the series. So be sure to, to be here next week. But this morning, I I mentioned last week that I wanted to do a sermon on the text in uh, Proverbs 31, the famous Proverbs 31 woman. But then I was reflecting upon that text this week, and I was thinking about this woman who gets up before dawn, who makes clothes for her children, who then spends her day doing real estate deals and and selling fabric in the marketplace, and she's a gourmet cook, and she's this great philanthropist who cares for the poor, and she teaches her children, and I just thought, this woman is exhausting. (laughs) And so I thought, instead of talking about uh, this exhausting Proverbs 31 woman, I think that what God wants me to talk to you about this morning is rest. And so I want to talk to you, especially you moms today, but really to us all, about the topic of rest. Uh, The text that we read this morning, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. I wonder how many of you parents out there feel like you need a little bit of rest. The comedian Jim Gaffigan was once asked what it was like to move from three kids to four kids, and he said, well, imagine that you're you're drowning in the ocean, and then someone throws you a newborn baby. He says, that's what it's like to move from three to four. And I could relate to that when I moved from three to four. But, you know, parenting is difficult work, and it's challenging work. It's exhausting work. But, of course, it's not just parenting. Our lives are full of that which drains us. It saps our energy. Now, I realize that in the culture that we live in, you know, we are not in, 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 in many ways, we don't work anywhere nearly as hard as many people do throughout the world and as they have throughout the history of the world. You know, throughout the history of the world, people have engaged in back-breaking work that has gone on all day long, and they have plowed fields, and then they have harvested fields, and they go home, and they, you know, grind their own bread, and they, they go through all this trouble of making just a loaf of bread at night to feed their bodies. By comparison, most of us live pretty charmed lives, don't we? And it's pretty easy, it's pretty lightweight for many of us, and even if you have a demanding job, it is not the kind of back-breaking labor that probably many people throughout the history of the world have engaged in. But you know, there is a unique way in which life in America in the 21st century is incredibly exhausting and draining. You know, even though for many of us, uh, we are actually working less hours today than we did 50 years ago, many of our lives feel drained of energy and sapped, and there's many reasons for that. And for some of us, it's because we never shut off, we never shut down. And these little things we carry around in our pockets, which are like another appendage on our bodies now, They're always alerting us to what's happening around us. We can check our email, we can check text, we can be responsive, we can be uh, available at all times and all places around the dinner table. Even in church, people check email. Not in this church, right? But in some churches they do. You can check stocks while I preach a sermon. I mean, this is the kind of world we inhabit. 
And of course, it's not just the incessant technology. Many of us have incessant voices going on inside our heads that are exhausting. And for some of you, it's because you are full of voices of self-condemnation and you're always litigating to your own self that you're okay, that you can, you're enough, and then you try to prove yourself to other people and, and through your work and through your performance, and you're always trying to produce, and you're trying to look good and feel good and present well, and it's just exhausting. And some of us, what we're overcome with maybe is not that in, you know, um, constant litigation. For many of us, we are overcome with constant anxiety and worry. And for some of you, it's because you're a control freak. And anytime something is outside of your control, you are anxious and you're worried. You know, your kids, they're off and they're doing their thing and you're always concerned about them because you can't control them anymore. And some of you are anxious about what's going on in church because you used to have positions of power and, and some, you know, authority and then things are going on beyond your control and you feel anxious about it and worried and what's going to happen. And many of us find ourselves overcome with anxiety and worry. And of course, some of you go to bed at night worried and anxious, and you wake up in the morning worried and anxious, and you just feel drained and exhausted. And I think for a lot of us, it is a combination of all of those things. It's the incessant litigation of trying to prove ourselves. It's the constant worry and anxiety about children and life and, and what ifs and, and all of this. And it's, it's being available through text messages. And then even actually the practice of shopping in a consumer society is incredibly draining. You know, you go online and you search for the best products and then you read all about those products and then you're thinking about what should I get. And, and we live in this interest, interesting time where we are constantly faced with choices. And decision-making can be very draining. Should I buy this? Should I buy that? And what if I go this? And what, what if, you know, and we're constantly drained by so many things in our life. And a lot of us just walk around with low-grade stress and anxiety. And Jesus has a word for you this morning if you find yourself in that place. Anybody in the house ever find themselves with a little bit of low-grade anxiety and stress and weariness? All right. Well, Jesus has a word for us in our text. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. But what does that mean? You know, a lot of us have already come to Jesus and you're still tired. You're still anxious. You're still worried. And you think, I've heard this promise before. I remember the very first time I heard this preach, you know, I was at a, a crusade with Greg Laurie, and he's preaching this thing, you know, and new to Christianity, and you're like, yes, I, I need freedom from, from anxiety and stress and, and worry, and, and I'm overburdened with my desire to impress other people and produce and consume, and, and yes, I need rest. And you go to Jesus, and you take him upon you, and then... A year later, you're still stressed out. So how can we find rest? And what kind of rest does Jesus actually deliver? And how can we get more of it in the actual experience of our lives? And I think answers to that question are found in this text. And I think what Jesus wants us to see this morning is that when he invites us to experience his rest, he's inviting us into at least three things. And I want you to see it in this text. I want you to see first that what Jesus is inviting us into in our text is a weekly rhythm. And I want you to go back in your Bible. Look what he says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you 
rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, I have rest for you. I have rest for your souls. And then I want you to see in our text what happens. In the very next passage, notice this promise of rest is followed by two stories about Jesus' healing on the Sabbath. And this idea of rest and Sabbath are connected. In the next story, Jesus is in the grain fields. He's plucking grain. Pharisees are after him. And Jesus gets in this debate with them, and he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And then a little bit later, he is healing, and then he says, look, it is right to do good on the Sabbath. And if you're going to understand what Jesus teaches us about rest, you need to understand something about Sabbath. Now, many of you will know that in the original account of creation, God engages in this creative, ingenious work. Each day he produces something new and he says it's good. He says that on day one and then on day two and then on day three and then on day four and then on day five and then on day six, he caps his work of creation by placing his image bearers in the middle of creation. And then after he's done with all of his work, the Bible says that God stopped and he took a Sabbath. God is not a workaholic. God didn't even go in the office that day. He stayed home and he took a rest. A little bit later in the book of Exodus, the command to take Sabbath for God's people is issued. And it's interesting because there's uh, this section in the book of Exodus between chapters 25 and 31 where God gives out the instructions to build the tabernacle. And I don't know if you've ever read that, but it reads something like an Ikea furniture manual, and it's full of this highly detailed stuff, and it's where a lot of people, you know, if they started reading the Bible in Genesis, they get to that section, they're like, whoa, and you close the thing up and you don't keep going. But if you stop reading, you miss something. The instructions for the tabernacle are given in six speeches. And then the seventh speech, like after six days God created and the seventh day God rested, after the six speeches about the tabernacle, on the seventh, the seventh speech is a speech about Sabbath. And on that day, God essentially tells the children of Israel, if you don't take Sabbath, it's going to kill you. And he says this, it says, therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and on earth, and on the seventh day he rested and he was refreshed. Isn't that an interesting way to describe the action of the infinite, eternal, omniscient, all-knowing, all-wise creator of all things? After he worked, he rested, and he became refreshed. You know, the word in Hebrew for him, when it says that God became refreshed, it is the verbal form of the noun soul. And so you know in the Bible where it says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Uh, that word soul is a noun, and it's used all throughout the Old Testament. 
but three times that noun soul is put in a verbal form, and when it's put in verbal form, it can actually mean resold. In other words, your soul, yourself was spent, and you needed to get yourself, you needed to get your soul back again. And here it says God took a rest so that he might be resold, that he might be refreshed, so that he might get his self back again. Now, of course, the Bible here is using anthropomorphic terms to describe the action of God. And that's a fancy way of saying it's describing God's work in human terms so that human beings might take note and learn something. And here is what we are to learn. If you are going to get your soul back, yourself back, if you are going to have the resources you need in order to engage in the good work of loving and extending compassion and giving yourself away for your children, for your aging parents, and for your next-door neighbors, if you are to give yourself in good work of doing justice and mercy in this world, then you need to take time to get yourself back so that you have something to give out. You know the old adage, you can't give what you don't got? Well, you need to take space in order to find refreshment to get your soul back so that you can go back out and engage in the work. The word Sabbath actually means work stoppage. It means to cease from your work. It means to stop the worry, to stop the anxiety, to give it a break. If you stop worrying, if you stop being anxious, don't worry. The world will keep going. The problem will still be there when you wake up the next day if you give it up for 24 hours. The world will keep spinning if you don't keep working. If you stop producing, it's still going to be there. If you stop shopping and consuming, the products will still be there on Monday. So he says, stop it. Refuse to be identified with productivity and acquisitiveness. Get yourself back. You know, the market wants us to be exhausted because exhausted people make terrific shoppers and terrific spectators at sports, and it makes us couch potatoes. Exhausted people do not make for transformers in the community, but rested people are dangerous on behalf of the community. It is when we take time, you know, the old spiritual said, take time to be holy. And it's when you take time not just to be holy, but to be human to recognize your finitude, that you have limitations, that you are not God, that you can find your, you can get your life back. And so what he's inviting us to do is, yes, it it may be to take one full day in seven to rest, to cease from work. This is a rhythm, and it, it doesn't have to be one particular day. It might be a, it doesn't have to be a Saturday. It might be a Wednesday. It might be a Monday. It might be taking space each part of your day to cease and to regain yourself again so that you might move out in love for neighbor and love for children and love for aging parents and love for the church and service. But you need to stop and take space to take time. Someone says, well, that just feels so selfish, you know? And, uh, you know, I remember I I had a, a dear friend of mine who he was so, you know, he, he just served and served and served and served and served and And he said, you know, I'll rest when I get to heaven. I said, well, you're going to get there a lot quicker if you don't take a rest now. You know, and and, and he says, oh, well, the devil devil never takes a rest. Well, yeah, that's why the devil's the devil. 
It's because he's cranky, he's grouchy, he never rests, he never takes a nap. Listen, you become more difficult to be around if you don't take space to regain your humanity. Now, I'm not saying, don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying to mentally check out and to become distracted with the internet and watching, you know, YouTube clips and Netflix binging and more and more entertainment and sports. Very often, that can be just as draining to your soul as a whole lot of other stuff. This is a call to open up your life to cease working and just to receive the good gifts of life for what they are, food and friendship and meals and fellowship and time around the table with family and friends and and what it takes to restore yourself. Now, I recognize too that different people are resold, they get their self back in different ways. And this can be very difficult if you're an extrovert and you're married to an introvert or if you're an introvert and you're married to an extrovert. So I'm an extrovert, and I get my soul back by the more people I have over. (laughs) My wife gets her soul back by getting away from people. (laughs) She needs space alone to recharge, to resoul. And so you need to know what you need, and you need to ask for it, and you need to take it. And that's not selfish, that's being wise so that you might give out again to others. And so Jesus, number one, is inviting us into a, uh, whoa, 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 a weekly rhythm. There it is. He's saying, look, work and rest, labor and Sabbath, this is built into the very fabric of creation. And if God took a rest to be resold, if God stopped and the universe kept going, then trust me, you can stop and the universe will continue to go. So number one, it's an invitation to a weekly rhythm. But I think Jesus is inviting us into something more. I don't think he's simply inviting us into a weekly rhythm. I think secondly, what Jesus is doing here is he's inviting us into an entirely different way of life. Because look at what he says back in the text. Notice the phrase, come to me, is paralleled with the phrase, take my yoke upon you. In other words, the promise of rest is attached to those who both come to Jesus as well as take the yoke of Jesus upon you. But what does that mean? Because, you know, a yoke is actually a work, it's an instrument of work and labor. And so there's something ironic about this. Jesus promises rest to those who take upon themselves an instrument of farming, of work. You know, it's kind of like you moms when, you know, if you get like a mixer for, for Mother's Day, Go bake us something, Mom. You're like, thanks. Got to feel real rested today. What does Jesus mean? The yoke in the first century was an idiom that many rabbis used to describe their own teaching and way of life for their disciples. And so if a rabbi in the first century had a collection of disciples around him, when he said, take my yoke upon you, it meant take my teaching and my way of life upon you. In later rabbinic Judaism, uh, this, this, you know, became a very popular thing. Uh, they would take their, their, their teaching, their way of life upon them, and disciples were, 
well known for following their rabbi around everywhere they went so that they could very carefully observe the mannerisms, the practices, the way of life of their rabbi. If they went, the rabbi went to the bathroom, they would go and they would wait outside and then they would, you know, wait and then they would follow him again. And there was a saying that developed in rabbinic Judaism that said, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you follow him so closely that you would be covered in his dust. And Jesus is saying, look, you need to follow me closely. You need to watch my way of life. Watch how I heal the sick and how I cleanse the lepers and how I eat with sinners, how I share my table with marginalized people, how I teach, how I instruct, how I go and how I go, but then also how I retreat to the mountain to be alone with the Father to pray. He says, watch my way of life and you will learn a way of life that over the long run brings refreshment. It actually brings rest. You know, I, I think the problem with many of us is that we hear this promise of Jesus, come to me and I will give you rest. And we come to Jesus as our savior, but we retain a lot of the values and the way of life of everyone else in our culture. And it would be like this. It would be, you know, years, uh, you know, several times, a couple times in the last several years, I took lessons on swing dancing as well as on uh, salsa dancing. Actually, about 12 years ago, Pastor Robert and I, uh, not just Robert and I, <laughs> my wife and I with uh, Robert and uh, uh, some friends of ours uh, took a salsa dancing class. In fact, Robert, would you just stand up and give us a little demonstration? Yes. It's something like, yes, I. Then later I took a swing dance class. I don't think either of them did me much good, but what they do in a dance class typically is they have you stand in a big circle and you end up changing dance partners, you know, every few minutes. Some of you have done this before? Really? Go live a little bit, people. You know, go take a dance class, you know. But... It was really interesting because, you know, the guy is supposed to lead the dance, you know, so I'm very carefully trying to get the steps down, and then uh, the, the female is supposed to follow, you know, the male lead. And so sometimes you would get somebody, uh, a female that didn't know how to dance, and yet she took the lead. And so she would start, you know, pulling me over this way and that way, <laughs> like, you slow down, you know, you're messing the whole thing up. And some of us come to Jesus and we're supposed to follow his steps to let him lead the dance. And yet we drag him off. We say, Jesus, you know, I need you, you know, to heal my sick loved ones. I need you to live a, help us live in a safer country and bless our military and bless our economy and bless our life and help us have success and get good on our tests and get good on our, our, our business. And God, come in in my life. And yet we don't adjust our life and fashion our life after his self-giving, sacrificial way of life that is all about releasing people of the wrongs they've done against you, forgiving, not holding on to bitterness, speaking with absolute truthfulness when we engage in conversations, remaining absolutely faithful in our covenantal responsibilities to spouses and to children and to parents, 
trusting God with what we eat and what we drink and, and learning just, God, you are my provider. And so we learn from Jesus this way of life that is about radical trust and radical obedience and radical fidelity. And the irony is, is that the more you give yourself over to this life, actually the more refreshing this way of life becomes to your own soul. And most of you know that there is a tremendous irony about the work of our hands. You know, sometimes you can go about a day where you're actually being lazy, and instead of giving yourself over to the work that is before you, you end up, you know, mind, you know, mindlessly, you know, thought, you know, kind of going off in your thoughts or playing on the internet or, you know, just answering, you know, incessant emails and texts. And, and at the end of the day, you feel absolutely drained and yet you got nothing done. And then another day, you can give yourself over to hard work that is exacting and that's backbreaking sometimes. And you give yourself over and at the end of that day, you actually feel energized, like you did something productive. Are you relating to me? You know this experience. And I think there's something analogous about the way of Jesus. This way is difficult, it is hard, it involves self-sacrifice. But when you learn how to speak with honesty with your words, when you're not sliding the truth and you're not trying to deceive people and getting caught up in your own lies, when you are remaining faithful in your covenant promises to your family, when you are forgiving people, and you're loving your enemies, and you're extending forgiveness, you're not sitting on things and rehearsing the wrongs of other people in your mind and going over them again and again, when you're not overcome with yourself and thinking about self and, and how did you present and are you proving yourself and this and like when you learn a different way of life, rest is the result. And this is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, come to me and take my way of life upon you and learn from me and you will find rest for your souls. So number one, Jesus is inviting us into a weekly rhythm. Number two, he's inviting us into a way of life. Recently, I, uh, I, I came across an article by a pastor and teacher that I, I really appreciate named John Ortberg, and he was talking about how he came to this season in his own life and ministry where he was just, he felt like he was overworked, he was overcome with anxiety, and he's kind of like a, a workaholic perfectionist, you know, and he was driving and driving, and he took Sabbath. And he took a space of time, he was given a sabbatical, and he said he felt like he re resold himself again, he, he found himself again, he got his life back. But he was afraid that when he went back to the church, he would get right back into the same patterns that he left. So he said he went to a friend and mentor of his named Daniel, Dallas Willard, and he asked for Dallas Willard to give him some direction and some wisdom. And here's what he said. He said, I had a whole day to spend with Dallas. I told him that I felt frustrated because the people at the church I served were not changing more. I asked him what I needed to do to help our church experience greater levels of spiritual growth. There was a long pause, and Dallas replied, you must arrange your days so that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. Huh? No, I, I corrected him. I wasn't asking about me. I was asking about other people. I was wondering what I need to make the church do. 
I was thinking about a book everyone should read or a program everyone should go through or a prayer system everyone should commit to. Yes, Brother John, he replied with great patience and care. I know you were thinking of those things, but that's not what they need most. The main thing you will give your congregation, just like the main thing you will give God, is the person you become. If your soul is unhealthy, you can't help anybody. You don't send a doctor with pneumonia to care for patients with immune disorders. You and nobody else are responsible for the well-being of your own soul. And listen, what he says about church work is good, it is true for all of the different vocations that we have before us, whether it be parenting, mothering, neighboring, serving in the church, serving in the office, unless you are caring for yourself, unless you are spending time with God and being refreshed in God, and there's a wellspring to draw from, you will not have much to give. And so Jesus is inviting us into a way of life. But thirdly, he's not just inviting us into a way of life. Jesus in our text is inviting us into a personal relationship. Notice, he doesn't just say, uh, take my yoke upon me. Before he says that, Jesus says, come to me. He's inviting us into a personal relationship with himself. A little bit later, Jesus names himself Lord of the Sabbath. And that is a massive claim because there is only one Lord of the Sabbath in the Old Testament. It is Yahweh, the creator of heaven and of earth, the God who created in six days and who rested on Sabbath and who gave Sabbath to the people. And here Jesus is saying, I am that great, eternal, infinite wellspring of life and well-being and peace and joy. And if you want more of that in your life, you need to attach yourself to me. You ever hang out with anxious people and become more anxious? You ever find yourself with the kind of people that it seems like, you know, I'm getting anxious right now over my slides. Are you guys? There it is. You ever hang out with people who like to speak negatively about other people behind their back and you find yourself caught up in that game? You ever found yourself with people who complain and complain and complain and you just jump right into it? But do you ever find yourself with people who are just joyful and they're content and they're happy and when you're around them, you feel more joyful and content and happy? Jesus says, come and spend time with me. Cultivate a relationship with me. I am the source of joy and contentment and happiness. John Ortberg goes on, and he, he asks the question of Dallas Willard. He says, um, he says, look, I'm trying to develop this. He says, I learned long ago about the importance of having a quiet time when I read the Bible and do daily devotions. I do my best to start every day that way. Willard said, I didn't say anything about having a quiet time. People in church, including pastors, have been crushed with guilt over their failure at having a daily quiet time or daily devotions. And then when they do, they find it does not actually lead to a healthy soul. Your problem is not the first 15 minutes of the day, it's the next 23 hours and 45 minutes. You must arrange your days so that you are experiencing total contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. But how can I have total contentment, joy, and confidence 
Ortberg responded, my work isn't nearly going well enough. Lots of people are not happy with me. I am inadequate as a pastor, a husband, and a father. Every week I carry the burden of delivering a sermon and knowing I'll have to feel the pain if it doesn't go well. I didn't say you should experience total contentment, joy, and confidence in the remarkable adequacy of your competence and your amazingly successful circumstances in life. It's total contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday experience of God. Sabbath means stop. It's the cessation of production and consumption. And Jesus says, I am the Lord of Sabbath. And I think at least what he means is this. Jesus is the end of the litigation in your head, of trying to litigate that you are okay, that you're fine, it wasn't your fault, it's someone else's fault. He is the end of your ongoing pursuit of proving yourself to your spouse or to your father or to your boss that you're okay, that you're good enough, that you're strong enough, that you're successful enough. Jesus is the end of your desire with all of your religiosity to finally be good enough to gain acceptance with God. Jesus is the end of all of your work and he is the beginning of gift and grace from God to us. We approach God not with a truckload of things in our hands saying, God, see all of the stuff I've done. I am worth it. And you show that to everyone around you. Look at me. I'm posting it all on Instagram and on Facebook. Look at my family. Look at my accomplishments. Look at what I've done. Or maybe you're looking at your stuff and you're just like, man, my stuff is not impressive. I'm a loser. I'm a failure. And Jesus says, stop all of that. It's not about your production. Christianity is about the production. It is about the work of God on behalf of broken, fallen, messed up people to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, to come into the world and to suffer a death that we deserve to die, to live a life that we could never live, and ultimately to bear in his own death on the cross our sin and our shame and our failure and bring it to an end so that he takes everything we've done wrong, all of, all, and, and he takes all of our good stuff that we're trying to prove ourselves with, and he takes all of our bad stuff that prove that we are not nearly as good as we pretend to be. And Jesus says, I'll take it all and bring it to an end, and instead I will give you grace and gift, and kingdom, and relationship, and salvation, and healing forever. And this is Christianity. And this is where we find rest.